0: friends and what's good y'all Shwebzy here welcoming you to episode 61 of in the deep i'm here flying solo once again and lately i've been joking a lot about where jordan has been all this time but i feel like it's time to come clean i hate i hate lying to our loyal listeners and i want you all to know what's really going on <sighs> a jordan and a shwebzy from an alternate timeline approached us and what they told us was alarming If In the Deep reaches episode 69, it will kick off a chain of events that will end the universe, killing everyone on Earth, except for weirdly Skip Bayless. That's what they told us. Alternate universe Jordan and Schwebzy told us that if we wanted to avoid that nightmarish hot take hellscape, all we had to do was stop recording episodes of In the Deep. And Jordan, being better looking, smarter and more benevolent than I am, called it quits right then and there. Personally, though, I kind of want to see where this goes. Plus, I need to give you guys all that great fantasy advice that you've grown accustomed to, allegedly. Before we get started with the episode, uh, just let's go through our usual spiel with the socials. If you want to reach out to any of us on Twitter, you can reach out to Jordan at Bunt Singles on Twitter. You can reach out to me at Schwebzi, S-H-W-E-B-S-I. Or you can reach out to us at our shared account, in the deep pl, where you can ask us fantasy questions or, you know, tell us what you liked or didn't like about the episodes. Um, we can also be reached at our joint email account where you can uh, send us fantasy questions or, you know, also, you know, tell us if you love us or hate us. I, I frequently ask for hate mail at our email address, uh, which is in the deep pl at gmail.com. And finally, Finally, someone sent us a letter. We get so few of these letters that I feel like it's notable. I need to mention it. We were, uh, we were sent a, a piece of, uh, I, I guess you would call it fan mail from one of our, our loyal listeners and friend of the podcast, Joe Lowry of Prospects Live. He, uh, he sent us a letter and I will, I'm going to read that letter right now. The, the contents of that letter are, Jordan, I love you. Schwebzy, I hate you. And that is literally what I asked for. So thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Our, our buddy, Jay Hook. Uh, it, it's I, I appreciate a, a man who can follow instructions. So th- thank you for taking me literally and, and saying nice things to Jordan and mean things to me. But yeah, any any of you listeners, anytime you have any questions or just want to say hi, drop us a line. On to the episode. Today, I'm going to do a little bit of a mini episode, I guess. I'm going to do one deep dive, go through some honorable mentions, and uh, then I'm going to do a new segment that I think will work for these last couple of months, given the, kind of the state of the league and state of bullpens. I'm going to do a, a bullpen power ranking a little bit later on. But uh, like I said, we're going to start with the deep dive, so let's get into that. The subject of today's deep dive is going to be Lars Newtbar. Last week when I was talking about trade deadline stuff, I said that if I had to choose a player to do a deep dive on last week, that player would have been Lars Newtbar. Well, instead of depriving myself of the opportunity to talk about a player that I wanted to talk about last week, let's talk about Newt this week. Clearly, since he's at the forefront of my mind for two weeks now, I'm a fan. I've added him in at least a couple of leagues. I, I checked all of my leagues to see if he was available. So let's take a look at why I'm such a fan. You already know if you listened to last week's episode of In the Deep that I am psyched about how the playing time situation is going down over in St. Louis as they surprisingly, really completely out of left field or maybe (laughs) out of center field, traded Harrison Bader to the Yankees, uh, freeing up an everyday lineup spot. And uh, they've showed their hand by playing Newtbar in 18 out of their last 20 games and 16 in a row, with Nutbar hitting anywhere from 6th through 9th, which is not ideal, Uh, while interestingly leading off once this past Thursday with Dylan Carlson getting a day off. There's a possibility that we'll see him lose some playing time once Juan Yepes returns, but if Newtbar keeps playing like he has, I really don't see him losing much playing time. So what has he done lately? Since being sent down to the minors for a day, back a, about a month ago, all Newbar has done is hit 308 with a 426 OBP and a 558 slugging percentage. Good for a 171 WRC During that time, he's walked more than he's struck out. Like this is silly. He has walked at a 19% rate while only striking out 13% of the time. That's basically one Soto plate discipline That's best-in-baseball-type numbers as far as walks and strikeouts go. Really, uh, the top two batters in baseball for strikeout-to-walk ratio are Juan Soto and uh, Yandy Diaz. And those numbers over his last 20 games put him right in between them as far as that ratio goes. During that 20-game period, he also hit two home runs and stole two bases— with 21 runs plus RBI, which while not outstanding is just it's positives across the board. If this is the kind of hitter he can be, if he can hit in the high two hundreds with double digit power, double digit speed and 80 plus runs, 80 plus RBIs, that's super, super valuable in deep leagues. Like that's what I think. If Dylan Carlson did that right now, I think we'd be pretty happy. And Dylan Carlson was much, much more sought after during draft season, and he was a much more heralded prospect. Like, and there, there's people out there that love Dylan Carlson, and I feel like a new bar can give us what we're hoping for from Carlson. So the exciting stuff here, though, is that looking looking at what's going on under the hood, I don't see any reason that this can't continue. Now, as a pitcher list employee, I am contractually obligated to mention hitter list author Scott Chu anytime I talk about using rolling charts to evaluate a player, and I'm about to do quite a bit of that. So, Scott Chu, sup? First things first, contact rate. In his short career so far, Newtbar's ups and downs with a uh, weighted on base average have pretty closely mirrored his zone contact rates. And right now that is sky high utilizing rolling charts. We can see that he's been above league average for a while now in zone contact rate, but he hit a peak as high as 94% over a 15 game stretch recently. 94% zone contact is elite. Now he's not doing that regularly. It's just, uh, it's like a peak that he, you know, briefly touched and then fell a little bit back to earth, but he's still well above league average lately. And that shows he's got some pretty great contact skills. It's not, it's also, this isn't a a new thing. This isn't something he's never done before. There was, when he first hit the majors last year and had his initial hot streak upon reaching the majors, he literally had 100% zone contact rate over 15 games at one point, literally 100%. He did not swing and miss in the zone one time over the course of 15 games, which is wild. And my favorite part about this though, is that, While his zone contact rate has gone up, his walk rate has also gone up. He's swinging less. He's walking more. He's striking out less. He's hitting the ball harder. He's hitting the ball in the air more. Like this hot streak has just about everything you could want. The only like if I if I could ask for one more thing, I would I I would wish that he was pulling the ball a little bit more because all of his power seems to be to his pull side. So, you know, it's not, you know, ideal, but it's pretty close he's got the tools that you'd want in a breakout. He's got better than 70th percentile sprint speed and better than 70th percentile max exit below. So he's got that, the power and the speed to be really good. But folks, I'm not going to lie to you. If you want to stay optimistic about Lars Nubar, don't look at his minor league track record too hard because it's honestly not super encouraging. The minor league numbers say to me that the ceiling isn't super high, but I think I'm fine with that. Not everyone has to be a superstar. Nukbar has the potential to be one of those deep league glue guys that I talk about pretty often and that I love so much. He could just kind of be pretty good at everything instead of being great at any one or two things. I love the plate discipline. I love what he's been doing lately with strike zone recognition. So definite bonus points in OBP leagues. All right. So with Newt out of the way, let's uh, let's talk about some honorable mentions. We've got a lot of these today since uh, we didn't really talk about many last week, except, uh, you know, uh, uh, the trade deadline impacted players. <laughs> so So let's go and start with some trade deadline impacted players. I'm going to get my my team out of the way. I'm going to talk about my Mets nice and early so that you don't have to deal with that later on. Tyler Naquin and Daniel Vogelbach have both been incredible since being acquired by the Mets. And both of these guys kind of fall under the same umbrella, the same niche, which is they mash righties. And the Mets appear willing to give them every plate appearance against righties that they can handle. So they will be worthwhile deep league targets for the next couple of months. But for what it's worth, between the two, I'm much more inclined to add Vogelbach due to the more consistent plate appearances, since he pretty much has that lefty DH spot completely locked down, whereas Naquin still has to compete with Mark Kana for plate appearances. Because while Kana is a righty, he's very competent against righties, and Kana is no slouch against... Uh, same hand hitters, and he's an important part of that lineup. He really kind of embodies what they're trying to do there, with grinding out plate appearances, tiring out pitchers. I, I do believe that the Mets want Canna in there as much as he can possibly be in there, so that does present a problem for Naquin, you know, getting every at plate appearance against righties. So yeah, uh, of the Naquin Vogelbach pairing, I prefer Vogie. So Paul DeJong is back and this is like blowing my mind because like, I, I don't even know what to make of this. I never particularly liked De DeJong, but he's been white hot since his return from the minors where he wasn't even that good. Like he was bad in the majors, got demoted, wasn't very good down there, got promoted and now he's awesome. I don't buy it. I don't get it. But he's been a streaky hitter in his career, so I guess it shouldn't be too surprising. And it would be very Cardinals-esque for him to come back from his banishment to lead the cards to a division title after he was pretty much completely written off. I'm not adding, but, you know, if you need like a Tim Anderson replacement, I absolutely understand rolling the dice here. Uh, Nick Gordon, we talked about him last week, and in his last 15 days now, He's hitting 412 with six runs, six RBI, a home run, and two stolen bases. He's quickly approaching why haven't you rostered this guy yet territory. And the same goes for Luis Renjifo, who over the same time period has hit 288 with six runs, nine RBI, two home runs, and two stolen bases. Renjifo hasn't had an off day in ages. He hits in the top four of the batting order every single day, and he has the positional flexibility that is so valuable in deeper leagues. There's no reason not to have to there's like if Renjifo is on the waiver wire in your league and it's anything deeper than 12 teams, uh, your your league is wrong. And I'm, I'm comfortable telling you that your league is wrong and bad and you should feel bad and your league should feel bad. Uh, he hit another double today. He's just absolutely on a roll lately. He's been really good for a solid like I, I think it's like six weeks now. Um, sticking in the middle infield. Haseon Kim, he's been pretty good lately, but I've been mostly ignoring it because of the impending return of Fernando Tatis Jr., but then a funny thing happened. That Fernando Tatis Jr. return is no longer impending thanks to Tatis being hilariously bad at playing baseball games for numerous reasons. So now we can get back to caring about Haseon Kim and his cromulent, all-around game and everyday role nothing special, but he's capable and he's present. He's there. Uh, I, I definitely had him at some point. I'm pretty sure I dropped him early, earlier in the year during a slump, but I think he's that kind of hitter. Now that he's on a hot streak, you can add him and you know, feel free to drop him when he's on a slump later because he just has not really displayed the upside that we thought he might have based on his KBO numbers. And now we're going to take a couple seconds for a break. All right, welcome back. I
1: am going to now
0: continue with the honorable mentions and talk about a few similar-ish players, starting with Joey Manessus. I'm probably saying that wrong. I should have looked that up beforehand, but uh, yeah, you know, I'm a professional. I'm good at this. I'm not sure how I feel about Manessus because he's got some really great under the hood stuff going on, but he's also done all of his damage this year off of some really really bad pitchers throwing some really bad pitches but in, in in a way that doesn't matter because production is production in fantasy like it doesn't matter if he hits a home run off of Jacob DeGrom or if he hits a home run off of Joan Lopez or Mark Leiter uh those latter two are players that he did hit home runs off of he also hit one off of Justin Steele which you know just Justin Steele is pretty fine going to talk about him later but yeah, I mean, production is production. So if he's a mistake hitter and is only good at hitting fastballs down the middle out of the ballpark, he's go- he's still going to see some fastballs down the middle this year. So I mean, maybe maybe he's worth an ad. So far, he hasn't swung and missed too much. He's making contact. He's making good contact. There's honestly not a lot to dislike other than the aforementioned quality of competition. And arguably in August and September, that's the time of year when we see the worst pitchers pitching. So maybe this can work. I'm not adding him personally because I I generally want upside and he's an older minor leaguer. uh, And and I guess he's a major leaguer now. But 30-year-olds don't usually hit the majors for the first time and then do better than they did in the minors. But I mean, sometimes results over process happens. And this might be one of those results over process success stories. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I don't usually add guys like that, but it it could work for you. Moving on to another corner infielder, JD Davis. It's not in my contract or anything, but this is, this is just a, a, a contract that I have with myself where I am obligated to talk about JD Davis in most episodes It feels like the most predictable thing in the world that the second the Giants got their mitts on J.D. Davis from the Mets, that he would turn everything around and be good again. He's already got three home runs with the Giants, and this is a good place for J.D. Davis because the Giants, being in the NL West, see so many lefties, and that's what J.D. Davis shines against. He's on the small side of the platoon technically, But in this particular situation, I'm not really sure that matters. He's going to get plate appearances. Don't panic about Evan Longoria's return, because apparently the Giants are more comfortable with J.D. Davis at third base than they are with Evan Longoria. I guess maybe they want to just preserve Evan Longoria's body. Uh, J.D. Davis is kind of a butcher at third base, but they keep running him out there. So we should keep running him out there in our fantasy lineups because the guy can hit. I will never quite be able to explain what happened to him in New York, but he was a legitimately really, really good hitter a couple of years back. And the fact that he's already hit a few dongs for the Giants tells me that I want him in my lineup in deep leagues. Derek Hall is another platoon bat, but a good one. He's on the strong side of the platoon in Philadelphia, where in the NL East, there aren't too, too many lefties. I'm more worried about his future playing time than the previous two guys I mentioned because Bryce Harper is allegedly coming back sometime soon. Sorry, soon is the wrong word. Someday in the future, Bryce Harper will be back. But the latest news on Harper's return is that he doesn't have the flexibility in his thumb that he expected to by now. So he's not going to be facing any pitching yet. So, I mean, I'm... I'm running Derek Hall out there as my corner infielder in my NL only league. I really enjoyed his two home run day, day the other day. And uh, yeah, I'm going to continue running him out there as as long as uh, Harper's out of the lineup. Now we are going to go through, oh God, a bunch of Kansas City Royals players in a row. Vinny Pasquantino and Nick Prado are still under 20%. Pasquatch is firmly within my why haven't you added him yet territory because it's well within the realm of possibilities that he just goes on a rampage these next two months and plays like a league winner. Prado is a clear second option to Pasquantino, which I've been saying all along. If both of them are available in your league, go with Pasquatch, but don't ignore Prado. He's definitely worth a stash as he had a pretty stellar minor league career. Nicky Lopez, base hits. Bags, Battlestar Galactica. You know what you're getting out of Nikki Lopez. So if you need steals, if you need batting average, Nikki Lopez is a good guy to have. He's finally kind of returning to what he did last year in a, in a luck-fueled second half where he was pretty awesome. Michael Massey is playing every day for the Kansas City Royals, and I'm slightly interested here, but I'm not rushing out to add him. This was one of those guys that showed up out of nowhere in the majors and then I went and looked at his minor league track record and it was like, huh, he's actually been pretty awesome in AAA this year. He's put up a couple of huge slash lines this year across double and Triple A, and he has a combined 16 home runs and 13 stolen bases. But his underwhelming prospect reports make me lean towards wanting, I, I need to see something first. I need to see him do something good before I believe it or run out to add him and so far he just seems kinda, you know, there. Going back to the NL East, Charles LeBlanc of the Marlins, uh he's been good so far. He's slapping the ball around a lot, but he's got a 2.5% walk rate and he's got a 517 Babip, both of which are very impressive for very different reasons. I am not buying this whatsoever. Brian Anderson is back. He had a home run, uh, and that's probably going to shift LeBlanc back into more of a bench role long term, I would think. A player for who playing time is not a problem, Christian Arroyo. Uh, Arroyo was actually my Tim Anderson replacement in my AL only league because of two things mainly. He plays every day, and he puts the bat on the ball. He's had hot streaks for Boston before. And I'm kind of hoping to strike gold here because he's striking out significantly less than he ever has before. I'm kind of hoping that he can be another uh, Luis Renhifo for me and uh, be, be a quality middle infielder for me for a, a month or so, or at least until he gets hurt again, which he has an annoying habit of doing a lot lately. Ella Montero over in Colorado, he's following the Charles LeBlanc formula of having a sky-high BABIP and a minuscule walk rate, which is not a good thing. I am not convinced by what I've seen so far of him being a good baseball player, a good hitter, but almost any Colorado hitter getting everyday plate appearances warrants paying attention to. So I'm not suggesting that you ignore him or forget about him, but you know, I, I would be keeping an eye on him. Add him to your watch list. I still love Jake Fraley. As like a home run pick, not like a, a, a pick to accumulate a bunch of home runs, but like a, a, a hail Mary. That's a better word for it, a better phrase for it, especially in OBP leagues, because he has he's toolsy. He's a really toolsy and he has the ballpark to put up a bunch of dingers and steals over the rest of the season. Like he could get eight more home runs and eight more steals before the rest the before the end of the year, which would be you know valuable off the waiver wire. You just have to be able to deal with his abysmal batting average. Well, like I said, OBP leagues, much more valuable. Lane Thomas is kind of in that JD Davis territory where I'm almost obligated to talk about him because I'm so invested in him. I don't really understand what's happened to him this year because his plate discipline has gone from a strength to absolutely abysmal, but the Nats have no reason not to play him every day and he's worth stashing in case he figures it out again. He's got a three home run game this year. He's made nine straight starts. He's been above league average since the trade deadline. Maybe, you know, maybe the everyday playing time will uh, let him get into a groove. I have him uh, in at least one league, and uh, I've got my fingers crossed that he can figure it out again going to talk about two young middle infielders here who are on very, very different paths right now. Jose Barrero and Vaughn Grissom. I was really high on Jose Barrero. I I talked about him as a big winner of the trade deadline as he had a full-time role open up for him at the uh, trade deadline. But man, he is quickly losing my faith in his... Short minor league, short major league career, he has now struck out close to 40% of the time, and this year, he has a two home run game, which is good, but he's also struck out 58.6% of the time this year, with literally zero walks. That's bad. Last year, he had a 52.2% whiff rate on breaking pitches, and somehow this year, it's even worse, at 61.5%. I hate to say it, but he just might not have major league pitch recognition. <laughs> like like a more extreme version of what's been happening to Jared Kelnick. <sighs> Both of his home runs were on fastballs, which, you know, kind of makes sense given the rest of everything else. But the game plan against him should be clear. Like, don't give him fastballs to hit, make him chase. I got to watch Barrero play against the Mets recently. There was a series. Cincinnati played New York, and boy, he was just chasing slider after slider out of the zone. He is not good at uh at avoiding that. Now on the other side of that coin, Vaughn Grissom, he made his major league debut at age 21 two days ago, and he had a combo meal, and then he hit a double in his next game. So, I mean, between the two of these guys, if I'm looking for an upside young player, I would go Grissom between the two because Barrero is quickly reaching he's dead to me territory until he shows me something more. The Braves did not bring Grissom up so he could sit. He's likely got a regular starting role, at least until Ozzie Albies comes back from his foot injury, which I I still don't think we have a clear timeline on that one. So Grissom should be able to show what he's got. The last hitter I want to talk about is Taron Vavra of the Baltimore Orioles, who seems fine, This is kind of like the, uh, the, the Orioles version of Michael Massey, where he tore up the minor leagues, although with less power than Massey. And, uh, yeah, I I think it looks like they're going to use him as a large side platoon bat, but he doesn't have power or speed really, or at least not enough to matter. It's not worthless being in the middle of a good lineup and Just hitting the ball and accumulating counting stats is worthwhile. It's, you know, you need RBIs and runs and you need batting average. But I just, if a player can't provide either power or speed, I generally avoid them. All right, moving on to some pitchers. I got to say, the sub 20% rostered landscape for pitchers and I feel like I say this every week, it is abysmal. It's bad. It's really bad, guys. I'm going I'm to do my best. And uh, a lot of what I'm going to talk about, a lot of what I'm going to point out here is streams, like quality streams for the next couple of weeks, because there just aren't really any guys down here who you want to add and keep. A lot of this is just picking and choosing the best streamers. So uh, probably my favorite streamer, I, yeah, yeah, I guess he's my favorite, is Graham Ashcraft still, but he doesn't get strikeouts. It's, it's low upside. It's probably too late at this point for half of this advice, but I'm absolutely running him out there for today's game against Chicago, today being Saturday, and his next game is at Pittsburgh, which is a very, very strong stream, I think. Drew Smiley is actually kind of high, higher upside, at least uh, compared to a lot of these guys down here. His stuff can overwhelm bad lineups. I uh, This is another player I got to watch recently. I, I, when the Cubs played the Mets, I was shocked at Smiley's stuff kind of overwhelming some Mets hitters, and the Mets are not a bad lineup. He gets Washington next, which is a really bad lineup, and that's a definite streaming target for me. Justin Steele is in the same boat. His next start is at Washington. So like Smiley, I'm targeting that stream. Dane Dunning gets Seattle today, today being Saturday, and then Oakland on Thursday. And I am 100% adding Dane Dunning for that Oakland stream. I like Dunning. He hasn't had quite the year that I've hoped for him, but he's still good. He's still perfectly cromulent and Oakland is perfectly not cromulent. They're, they're, they're bad. They're bad is what I'm trying to say. Speaking of Oakland, James Caprellian, his next two starts are at Texas and home against Seattle in what is a pretty, pretty nice two-start week. I'd add him for that if I was looking for a two-start pitcher. Like if I was just dead set on getting a two-start pitcher, he's one of the few sub-20% two-start pitchers that's actually worthwhile. I feel like a broken record here, but the upside is not great. But, you know, it's slim pickings down here. He's got a 2-3-5 ERA since the start of July, but he doesn't really deserve it. So don't be too mad at me if you add him for his two-start week and the this Vargas rule just completely collapses. Matt Manning, I don't know how I feel about Matt Manning. Jordan was particularly high on him going into last year, and that went horribly. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to talk say I don't mean to say mean things about my my co-host while he's not here, but boy was that call bad. Jordan, Matt Manning was terrible. Uh, I had pretty much written him off this year. He was so bad last year, but so far so good in his second go round. He still doesn't strike anybody out, so his upside is kind of limited but he's got a great home ballpark and he's in a good division to be a media. Like the the, the best division to be a mediocre pitcher in is it's one of the centrals. It's either the AL central or the NL central. And I would lean towards the AL central because it has much better ballparks. So since he's in that environment, there's a non-zero chance that he can be a nice Orioles-esque streamer through the rest of the season. And speaking of the Orioles, Pretty much every one of their starters is like a sub 20% guy and kind of worth starting at home. It's the same old same old. Start them at home. It's a bunch of cromulent, low upside arms, and their home ballpark is the best in baseball now at this point at uh denying home runs. It went from like it did a complete 180 when they moved that wall and left field back between the wall and left field and the humidor. It's gone from like the worst ballpark for home runs to the best, Uh, you you know, from a pitcher perspective, not a hitter's perspective. But an interesting wrinkle to that Baltimore Orioles rotation now, two interesting wrinkles, actually, DL Hall is making his major league debut. And I mentioned how all of the Orioles starters are kind of low upside streamers. DL Hall has electric stuff. He's got like Brian Bio, Matt Brash, kind of like really electric stuff, except he's higher on prospect lists than either of them. Like prospect hounds love DL Hall. He's had a bit of an underwhelming, inconsistent wild year this year, but the stuff is undeniable. I would not add him as a, If I needed a good start, I wouldn't add him. But if I'm looking for a high upside add, that this is where I would be focused. Uh, Austin Voth has also been like legitimately interesting since Baltimore added him. He came over from Washington. And since joining the Orioles, he's got a 319 ERA with a strikeout per inning and a good whip. After putting in some solid work against the Rays today, it might be time to start paying attention to Austin Botsch. the uh, The last pitcher that I'm going to talk about is Tuki Toussaint. He's back. I, I remember when Tuki was like just an electric, like must-add pitching prospect, and then he kept, couldn't really figure it out and kept getting hurt. But uh, now he's back. He's in the Angels' rotation now, and he can't stop walking dudes, but he also can't stop striking them out. I absolutely would not start him against a good offense, but he has really handled Oakland a couple of times now, and he might be the rare high upside streamer right now, which really, just, there aren't too many of those right now. He's going 60% curveballs and splitters this year, and that's a good thing because he's getting 40 plus percent whiff rates on both of them. I'm keeping a very close eye on him because this is one of the more intriguing streamers out there. This is one of the few guys that I might add with the with with, with eyes on holding on to him for more than a start. Although I would expect low innings totals due to inefficiency and uh, the fact that he's in a six-man rotation significantly lowers you know the number of starts that he could have for the rest of the year. You know he'll he'll get one or two fewer starts than another uh, streamer that you could you know if, if you tried to pick up another guy in a five-man rotation, you'll you'll lose some innings there. So the last thing that we're gonna do, we're gonna do one more little segment before I uh, go away and leave you alone. I'm gonna talk about some bullpen situations. I'm I'm not gonna go too far into any of these pitchers, but I'm just going to give kind of a rundown of my favorite ads and guys I would be avoiding in if I'm looking for saves. So. Yeah, this is kind of like a bullpen power ranking. I'm literally just throwing this together, trying it out, seeing how it goes. Uh, Yeah, so starting from the top, my favorite sub 20% bullpen ad is Rowan Wick. He's got closer stuff. He's got the role. And the Cubs are bad, but they're not terrible. So there should be save opportunities there. My second favorite right now, and... I admit this one is this one is a potentially tumultuous. Uh, John Schreiber. Tanner Houck is hurt. I like Tanner Houck. Uh, You know, he's a he's a favorite of in the deep, but Houck is hurt. And John Schreiber has been awesome this year since he's been a middle reliever for the most of the year. A lot of people probably don't realize how good he's been. But John Schreiber is striking out 30 percent of the batters he sees, and he's got a one point eight ERA. He's currently listed as kind of a co-closer with Garrett Whitlock, but Schreiber does have the last save for Boston after Hauk went on the IL, and I I kind of love Schreiber because there's a chance because this bullpen is so unsettled that while Hauk is on the IL, Schreiber takes this job and runs with it. I I believe that he'll succeed in the role. It's just I who knows what that team is going to do with its bullpen hierarchy. Next on my list is Kyle Finnegan. I don't love Kyle Finnegan. I don't love the Nationals, but he seems to have the role locked down, which, you know, counts for something. There's a lot of better pitchers than him on this list that just don't have the role settled. So, you know, Finnegan is just a better bet for saves. Will Crow is like a much, much lesser version of John Schreiber where he's got the job while the real closer is injured and Will Crow is not nearly as good as John Schreiber. So yeah, that's why he's lower on the list, but he should get a couple of saves in the short term. Andres Munoz of the Mariners, I've talked about him a lot. I love Munoz. If you can, if you just want a middle reliever or you need a holds guy or you just need some a couple strikeouts here and there. Munoz is awesome and God, I wish they would just give him the closure job for like a week so that he can run away with it for the rest of forever and be another Edwin Diaz, but I'm rambling. So Andres Munoz is someone to add if you don't particularly need saves, but you are save speculating or you just need his uh, strikeouts and ratios. Uh, He actually, he pitches quite a lot. It seems like. And then, uh, If you are looking for saves, there's AJ Puck, Jonathan Hernandez, Alexis Diaz. Those guys are all kind of in the same tier for me. The skills are fine, but they're earmarked as being in closer committees and they're on underwhelming teams. Puck, Hernandez, Diaz is the order that I would have them, but Puck is also dealing with you know a kind of committee there with jackson where zach jackson might it's it's hard to say that team is so bad that they might not get they might not get more than save 10 more save opportunities for the rest of the year but uh yeah i i like puck the best out of that trio and then there's a couple of situations that i'm just outright avoiding and that is the angels and the diamondbacks but if i had like like Mark Melanson is the head of the committee if it is a committee in Arizona, so I guess I would add someone from Los Angeles before I added someone from Arizona, but this might be the most unsettled closer situation in baseball in Los Angeles with, I guess, Jimmy Herget leading things with maybe Ryan Tapera or Jose Quijada being a a next in line. I don't know. That's it. That's probably my least favorite closer situation in baseball. Like I, I really, if I, I, if I had to bet on who was going to get the next save there, man, I guess I would say Ryan to just because he got the last one, but I, I, I get, the real answer is I wouldn't want to bet on this, but yeah. Uh, if, if you're a gambling person, I guess I would go uh, either to para or Hergit. Jose Quijada has the best strikeout stuff in the bullpen, but he also walks everybody he sees. So, like really, it's not a great situation there. They don't win enough games to uh even chase this, I don't think. And uh, alright. Finishing up the closers means that we have finished up this episode. Uh, before I go, I just need to one more time go through the social media stuff. If you want to reach out to Jordan or I, you can find him at Bunt Singles on Twitter or me at S-H-W-E-B-S-I, or you can reach out to the show, the shared account, at In P L. If you liked this episode or if you liked the, our previous episodes or, you know, if you hate us, go ahead and uh, on your favorite podcast platform, give us a review. We appreciate the feedback. And uh, yeah, I think that's it for me this week. Bye, friends.